told you it's the con? That's right, the, the, uh, the internet. Internet. Can I con a con, bro? Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 294 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, in, in what's becoming kind of, kind of a shadow fourth mic, uh, apparently, <laughs> coming up on a, a record-breaking number of appearances now, the, the fourth appearance, um, we, we are, of course, always happy to be joined by Corey Doctorow. Um, this is because, you know, Co- Corey keeps cranking out books at an unbelievable pace, and his punishment is to come on TMK <laughs> and talk about every single one of them. Uh, and so, the, but this time, Corey is on to discuss the excellent book. I've, I just finished reading it a couple days ago. It's, it's breezy. It's, it's breezy. And substantial at the same time. I loved it. Um, the Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, out now in its second printing from Verso. And Corey was telling us it's a uh, USA Today national bestseller now. And so, uh, I, I, and for good reason. Corey, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks for getting those brags in there. It's, uh, you got to take your wins where you can get them. That's right. Yeah. And, and I mean, especially with a book like this, right? Like, this is not the kind of book that I expect to be selling out its print runs or being a bestseller, not because it's not good, but because it's like on a pretty technical topic, interoperability, competitive compatibility. It's it's making arguments that not that long ago would have been, I think, pretty niche, right? Like maybe it would have got mentioned in like Wired or something, maybe snarkily mentioned in Wired, depending on who was writing about it. Um, but like, I think it is really a telling as well. And this is something that has been something of a theme in our conversations recently um, with like Paris, talking about and brian talking about the luddite tribunal and that was just written up in the talk of the town with the new yorker um like there's a real like shift in 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 public perception i think around technology what it should be doing and what it's failing to do and people's reactions to that and this book is falling um, or coming out rather at the exact perfect time I think when people are scrambling and looking for new ideas that are laying around on the table um, to pick up and use against the old ideas that have clearly uh, failed us yeah you know I, I obviously the tech lash is has been around now for like half a decade uh, but I think that so many of the early explanations were so like anti-materialistic, you know, the whole mind control, like Zuboffian kind of Tristan Harris, like they're, they're evil wizards who are hacking your dopamine loops and that's why you're sad. Uh, and, and it's hard to explain how it is that Apple got as bad as it did when Apple is the company that says, well, we won't ho- hack your dopamine loops, right? Like the, the, the spiritual explanations lacked explanatory power. 
And I think that um, there's a, a an increasing audience of people who are just like, oh, no, I can actually connect this more readily to other kinds of monopoly power and, and corporate depredations than I can to um, high-tech wizardry, right? And, and so an explanation that leans into the material uh, uh, aspect of, of how this arose, uh, arose and also is technically rigorous and thinks about what it is we, we absolutely know technology can and can't do and, and how that plays into what we can and can't make the tech companies do. You know, a, a lot of the problems that people have with technology are are real, but the solutions they come with are not, right? Like, um, you know, there are like serious problems with child sex abuse material and child sex abuse uh, and exploitation online. But the idea that we could that therefore resolve it by like making a, a, a crypto system that keeps your privacy when bad guys want to peek at what your messages are, but doesn't keep your privacy when you're engaged in child sexual abuse and exploitation is just like, it's not real. And, uh, you know, it's really important that as people get legitimately angry about technology, that there's someone there who understands the technology to say, great, your anger is real. Here are things that would work as opposed to just things that you can chase after and demand or get angry about or, uh, you know, demand and then later on have backfire on you. Like, I think the calls to like create new copyrights to stop people from training AI are going to really disappoint the people who, who like that idea because all that's going to happen is your boss is going to say, great, assign that copyright to me now. And then they're going to train an AI and fire you. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think that like, like actually leaning into a, a policy explanation that's technically informed, that speaks to the way that people feel corporate uh, life kind of impinging on their own and how everything in their world is getting worse and companies are getting more powerful and richer, that that's like a winning combination right now. I, I, I really love that way of framing it, of course, because, you know, TMK is a, is a, a, a diehard materialist analysis of technology. <laughs> and so I think that's exactly right, though, because there is so much of this, there's this awakening of the fact that, like, how, like technology and the tech sector have power and they wield power. But the idea that like power is not just this ephemeral abstract thing in the world, but it is like wielded in very specific ways and channeled through very specific means um, that power is, uh, is, is a force, but that force has to be directed um, in specific ways. And I, and I think there's this real desire to recognize that the pow that power dynamics exist and then uh, a, a desire to just abolish all power dynamics right where it's like well that's not how that works right like po power is not something that you can just uh, abolish that you can just do away with or that you can label onto some as you say like the kind of the very idealist uh, abstract kind of zubafian it's it's controlling our minds or power is just a, a a natural force in the world you know it's the technium or whatever it is but i think it, what what your book is really demanding us to do is to think about power in material ways and think about how that power is being 
wielded and constructed in very specific ways through things like regulation, through technical standards. Like these are the sources uh, of power in the world um, that I think most people don't really think about in terms of power. Like you don't think about a, a, a technical standard or an internet protocol as sources of power. You don't think about um, your USB plugging into some ports and not other ports as a source of power. But I, I think the, the thing that your book really succeeds at doing and does really quickly as well is establish that, no, this, this, this is the material instantiation of power in the world. It's the material basis of the tech sector's power. Um, and that if we really want to be serious about changing that then that's what that's the power that we have to challenge and not only challenge in the sense of abolish it but challenge in the sense of take control of it and make it do things for our purposes and in our interest yeah i mean i want to give it like a concrete example for people for whom this all sounds abstract right so we've all had the experience of logging into some hell site or another and going oh i hate this but i can't quit it and, you know, if you've ever like been a smoker, that might feel familiar, right? You've, you've had that experience. And so maybe, you know, it's natural when someone says, hey, like, this is addictive and that's why you're there, that you think, oh, yeah, it's addictive and that's why I'm there. But I, I think that there's like a more material explanation, one that doesn't require that we like take a metaphor about addiction and turn it into a, like a belief about what's going on in your brain. And, and another simpler explanation is that like the people that you love are using that service. People that you want to hear from people you find interesting are using the service. Uh, they find you interesting. Um, it would be really hard to all agree that it's time to go. Even now that there's like lots of alternatives, maybe even like too many with, with threads and blue sky and, and Mastodon and whatever. Um, you know, even if you can all agree that it's time to leave, you don't you can't agree on when to go or how to reestablish yourself somewhere else or, you know, whatever. I, I, I've sometimes called this the, like the Anatevka problem for Fiddler on the Roof. Cause like Fiddler on the Roof is basically like every, every, you know, 30 minutes or so the Cossacks ride through and beat the shit out of them. But they can't leave, right? Not because like they're not allowed to, but because they they love each other and they can't all agree on where to go next. And it's actually not until like the czar kicks them out and puts them into exile that they all go. And there's this like super poignant scene at the end where they're like, I'm going to Chicago, I'm going to New York, I'm going to Krakow. And you realize that, oh, these people are never going to see each other again, right? And so it's like there's a really high cost to leaving. And that cost is not due to some like natural freestanding phenomenon. It's not like designing the code to let you leave a service and go somewhere else, but continue to send messages to the people who didn't leave the service is hard in the same way that it wasn't hard to like change the cell phone system so that when you change carriers, you can keep your phone number. Like that wasn't technically challenging, right? It was just uh, a, um, a business decision among the firms not to do it. And, and not only is it not technically particularly challenging to design a way to leave the service and continue to stay in touch with the people who, who you left behind, it's not challenging to do that particularly, or it is challenging, but it's not impossible to do that even if the company that you're leaving doesn't want you to, you know, when, when MySpace was the dominant actor and Facebook was the new kid on the block, they had this great pitch for MySpace users, which was like, 
We know you love your friends on MySpace, but has it ever occurred to you that MySpace is owned by an evil, senescent, crapulent Australian billionaire who spies on you from asshole to appetite? Uh, come and use Facebook. We will never spy on you. Right? That was the original pitch for for Facebook. We're the non-spying. Uh, we're the non-spying social media network. And you know their pitch wasn't like come use the non-spying network. And while you're waiting for your friends to wise up that they shouldn't be spied on either, just like chill here and read our privacy policy and think about how good it is. It, they, they gave you a bot, right? And you gave that bot your login and your password for MySpace. And it went to MySpace several times a day, pretending to be you and said like, hey, any messages for Jathan? And then scraped all those messages and put them in your Facebook inbox and you could reply to them and it autopiloted them back out into MySpace. Like, that you could do that as a technical matter to Facebook. It's just that Facebook would sue you until the rubble bounced, right? So like on the one hand, like Facebook could choose to do this. And on the other hand, you could choose to do this without Facebook's permission. But in both cases, there's a legal barrier as much as any technical barrier that keeps you locked to the service. And so that's the reason that you're sitting there saying, oh, I hate this place, but I'm still logging in. It's not because you're dopamine loop has been hacked by an evil wizard it's because you love your friends and the people who matter to you and your customers and your audience and all the other stuff that they've taken hostage and you just need to uh figure out how to how to you know make that choice between staying where they are and and taking your lumps with elon musk or mark zuckerberg or going somewhere else and losing that community like you like you said i think that's also a really big thing you know even the way in which addiction is thought of when it gets deployed in these metaphors it is like taken from how we understood it sh- shot down and and rot and, and you know like basically simplified a bit and then turned into something that is used for these metaphors that are you know uh, purely about these mind control rays right like instead of I really like the example for like you know and laughed when you talked about the cigarette because I also think about how when I have cravings you can very obviously feel what the craving is just like the idol I need my cigarette I want to smoke my cigarette and then also when there are other things over whether it's stress whether it's like just idleness whether it's other people are smoking whether you had a drink right there it, it's not so much that the the craving comes out of nowhere even though there is that big background addictive craving because of how insidious of a substance nicotine is. Sure. <laughs> right. Right. But, but no, I think you're exactly right. You know, I think that's, that that's, I really, you know, that was one of my favorite things, I think with your, especially your pushback against these sort of uh, mind control uh, framework and analysis uh, in the wake of Zuboff's thing. You know, I think I appreciated some of the criticism that came from like Morozov and others where they tried to, where they tried to talk about, you know, like the the intellectual mentors that she had and the functionalism that was inspired in there, but also like losing the plot that like, this, this is, not happening right? <laughs> to, to, on a very real level. And we are yeah. describing and building like a very complex intellectual edifice and wasting a lot of resources, analyzing something that doesn't actually exist. It will make it much harder for us to then do any sort of reining in of it, right? Because people build up theories and regulatory frameworks, anticipating yeah. responses to a non-existent form of control. And then when it fails, 
well, looks like we shouldn't have done that in the first place, right? Well, and Zuboff goes further, right? Because she's like, oh, if these guys have got a mind control raid, the last thing you want to do is break up the monopoly, right? <laughs> yeah. Because then you got a hundred people with mind control rays, <laughs> right. right? Like at least we know where all the mind control rays are now, right? We can we can just go and like you know uh, create like constitutional monarchies where these people might be the kings of the internet forever, but like an aristocracy of regulators will make them wield their power safely. Uh, and so it actually cuts like against it. I sometimes call this the night of the comet problem where like, uh, <laughs> she's like, there's this comet heading towards the earth. That, yeah. That's this mind control, right? And if we right. blow it up, it's just going to turn into like a shower of killing meteors that are going to, you know, destroy every, uh, every, every, uh, planet on earth, all, every uh, city on earth. All we can do is steer the comet, right? <laughs> we can't break up the comet. And, and mm -hmm. I think that's like, you know, I, I think that there's like a, a valid leftist concern about uh, competition as like just a, a kind of thing that people reach to reflexively as an answer to problems. And, and you know, especially when it's like, oh, well, why, why do we need regulation? The competition will force companies to behave better because, because they'll be worried about losing their users. I actually think there's some truth to the idea that companies are disciplined by the fear of losing users, uh, losing customers, losing money. It is one of the things that disciplines companies. But also, like, if you want to subject these companies to good regulation, one of the things that you need to do is make them not too big to fail and not too big to jail. You have to make them like less powerful than the governments that are trying to regulate them. And when they sing with one voice, right? When they when they form cartels and monopolies, they're really hard to to budge. You know, I, if you remember the Napster Wars, right? Back back 25 years ago, like tech was 10 maybe like 50 times bigger than the entertainment sector during the Napster Wars, but it got its ass kicked. And a, and a kind of simplistic model of like power and money that just says the biggest industry gets its way in an inter-industry fight fails to account for this. But what's really important about that era is that tech was like a rabble of hundreds of small and medium-sized companies with a couple of giants like Intel and Microsoft, um, whereas the entertainment sector was like seven giant companies. And so when they went to Congress, they all said the same thing. Like not only could tech not agree on what its policy should be, they couldn't agree on like where to have a meeting to discuss the policy. And and so, you know, one of the things that competition does is it turns a unified cartel into an atomized uh, rabble, right? This is why our bosses want to split up our bargaining units, units when we try to form a union, right? Because like if we're one a working class with one union that bargains for us as a group, then we can't be played off against each other. And you know, when when Rebecca Giblin and I were working on Chopin Capitalism, we interviewed David Gibbs, uh, David uh, Goodman, who ran the Writers uh, Guild when they were striking against the agencies, and he talked about how uh, up until the Reagan era, the way that bargaining used to go is all the guilds, all the all the entertainment unions would come together as a single bargaining unit and they would go to the weakest studio and they would get the best contract they could out of them. And then they would go to the next weakest studio and they'd get a contract out of them that was modeled on it and they would get really good deals. And Reagan flipped it so that the AMPTP, which now everybody knows about, the, the arch villains of the writer's strike and the actor's strike, were able to bargain as one unit. So all the studios now bargain as one unit and all the guilds have to mm -hmm. bargain separately, which is why the writers got what they wanted, but the actors are still out on the picket line. 
right? And so like that's the dynamic that we should want as people who care about workers' rights and human rights is one in which our adversaries are atomized and played off against each other and where we are unified, ideally behind democratically accountable institutions like unions and regulators and so on, that that bargain in public on our behalf. Yeah. And because the way it exists now, you know, you, you talk about how uh, these platforms and these technology companies, you know, they do fear losing users. And so they want to do some things to keep people on. But for the most part, the thing they do to keep you on is, as you've been explaining, like, you know, shackle you with a ball and chain and say you can't go anywhere um, if you want access to the people you love and the services you've come to depend on. And, and they, they, in reality, what they, what we have created is a system where uh, these tech companies have complete contempt for their users. They hate and despise their users only insofar as they can continue to milk them for um, for data, for profit, for whatever value they need to get from them. Um, and and this is what happens when you have comp- when you have power dynamics where the companies have all the power and the users have none. I, I mean, I just had an article come out. In, in, in a business insider talking about this, some of this with the insurance industry. And I talk mm-hmm. about how the insurance industry has just become increasingly more and more antisocial and antagonistic to its policyholders, to the public. And I say, I have a line in there uh, that, you know, you may hate your insurer, but they probably hate you more, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I, and I think the same can be said of the of the Facebooks and the Amazons and the Apples like they you you probably hate them but they hate you more because their hatred of you is betrayed in the way they treat you and the way that they deny you of any basic rights or dignity this is an area where like uh, uh, understanding labor dynamics is really helpful because we've all encountered this instance in which like our boss is quote unquote a good guy but where the imperatives of the firm drive them to do things to you that are unconscionable. And uh, in part, that's just like their boss says, do it or you're fired. And one of the things that a, that a union does is it means that when your boss is told by their boss, go do this bad thing, they can say, hey, if we do the bad thing, then the union will go on strike or grieve us with the NLRB or do something else that will exact a cost that the worst person in the company has to care about, right? That like, that isn't, you know, someone's gonna, someone's gonna have to work overtime, miss their kids little league game or, you know, family funeral or whatever. It's like, I'm going to have to go to the shareholders at the end of this quarterly, uh, at the end of this quarter and give them a report that is worse than we announced at the end of the last quarter. And that's going to trigger a mass sell off of our shares. And I will get personally much poorer, right? And like those incentives are incentives that the people who say incentives matter, uh, respond to right, and and you see this in the in the changing character of these companies. Like, it's not wrong to say that for a long time Google, on balance, had its users' backs. Right, Google often in policy fights was on the right side of the policy fight. Like all that "don't be evil" dunks that we do on them. Um, it's 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 a little unfair because like Google, in fact, attracted employees to the firm who cared about being evil. And then to the extent that they could win an argument about some course of action, the company wasn't evil. And one of the things that helped them win that argument 
was the fear of losing customers or getting falling afoul of a regulator or both, right? And it was only when the firm no longer had to feel I fear either of those things that on balance, it tipped into not having its users backs and selling its users out. And like, I'm not simping for Google, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that like the way we get better, we get a, a, a better life is to make Google nicer. I think the way we get a better life is to make Google afraid, right? So that the, like, so that the people at Google who are good people and like I've met them, uh, and, and know them, uh, the people that are good people, when they say, if we do that boss, we are going to do something that will make me feel personally ashamed and you much poorer. And that's the way that they win the argument. Cause if all they say is it's going to make me feel personally ashamed, they lose the argument. Yeah. And, and I will say the, relating this to the, the labor capital dynamic is really important too, because we see this, this exact power dynamic play out in all these sectors where the tighter the labor market. So the less mobility workers have, the less ability they have to leave a job, find another job to upgrade, get promotions by moving to another firm, uh, whatever it might be. The, the less ability workers have to, uh, move in the labor market, the more brutal and cruel were, uh, bosses become. And, and th- this is to be expected. This is how power dynamics work. When you have people shackled, um, whether it's in a tight labor market or an open air prison, uh, then you become uh, cruel masters of those, of those people that you have trapped. Yeah, I mean, like the free, like my next, not my next novel, the novel after my next novel. Yes, I write too many novels. Uh, <laughs> it's called The Bezel, and it's a prison tech novel. And, you know, prisons are full of like the world's worst tablets that are given, quote, for free to inmates by companies that um, uh, also arrange with prison management to eliminate in person visits, kill the library, get rid of in person continuing education, uh, and end all postal mail. And then they charge prisoners' families to access this stuff on like an incredibly expensive basis. So, you know, the shittiest Zoom call you can imagine, Skype call you can imagine, postage stamp size video at $8 a minute. Um, They actually charge you for stamps for email, uh, where each page of the email requires another stamp. And, (laughs) yeah. And, and like, it's just like it's the worst imaginable email. And it's like it's obvious to us why that is, right? It's a captive yeah. audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not a mystery why they treat you that way. But like it's also true that if you go like in, in microcosm, when you get through the checkpoint at airport security, water goes from two dollars a bottle to twelve dollars a bottle. Because mm-hmm. on the other side of the checkpoint, you you're out of options, right? If the switching costs are high, the firm can abuse you without worrying about losing your business, right? The the Stadium hot dogs, prison tablets, uh, the the increasing and shittification of Gmail, uh, ads in in Audible audiobooks now. Yeah. You know, like there used to be this great sketch that Lily Tomlin would do on Laughing, where she would be a telephone operator, and it was like an ad for AT and T, and every every one of these fake ads ended with um, "We're the phone company. We don't have to care," <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. The, this prison tech model you're describing sounds like the uh, the Facebook free basics model that they tried. Hundred percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Poor internet for poor people, right? And and you know, this is where interoperability comes in because tech, unlike a lot of other forms of lock-in, 
does have an exceptional character. And and the the one well one of the two kinds of tech exceptionalism that I'm 100% here for is this idea that Turing complete universal von Neumann machines can run every program we know how to write. We don't know how to make a computer that only runs some programs. It would actually be kind of cool if we could, like you could make a printer that could only run the uh, spray ink on paper program and not the uh, host of virus that crawls your network and infiltrates all your computer programs <laughs> because those are bad programs and we sometimes get them in our printers too. Uh, and But we don't know how to make those. And that means that like, the only thing that stops people from making a program that lets something new talk to something that exists in ways that unlock value for you at the expense of the shareholders of the company that made it is, is a legal impediment, not a technical one. It's a policy impediment. You know, one in four internet users has installed a, a, a web-based uh, ad blocker, which is, you know, really a privacy tool. Uh, and, you know, Doc Searles calls it the largest consumer boycott in human history, and zero internet users have installed ad blockers for their apps because you can't install an ad blocker in an app, not because it's technically challenging, but because removing the encryption wrapper around the app is a violation of Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it carries a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. So like, Sick. yeah, yeah. So we can think of like an app as a web page wrapped in just enough IP to make it a felony to add a privacy uh, uh, blocker to it. Again, should it surprise us that as bad as the open web is for surveillance, that apps are 10 million times worse for surveillance, right? Like it's like the, whatever you can say about the web, there's never been a scandal like a, a Muslim prayer app has location-based spying feeding the, the you know, Homeland Security, which is like a, a real thing on, on yep. apps, right? And yep. it's like, they don't have to care. They're the phone company. Literally, mm -hmm. it's on your goddamn mm -hmm. phone. They're the phone mm -hmm. company. They don't have to care. And so, you know, it, it's not a technical matter. It's a, it's a policy one. And the policy, the reason the policy is so bad is that tech is united and users are a rabble. And we need to make tech a rabble and unite users. I'm one of those assholes that not only do I use ad blockers, but I don't use apps. I use websites to access Good for you. apps. And I recently got the, uh, the little uh, notification from YouTube that my use of ad blockers on their website yeah, was, yeah. Uh, was a no-go. But, I, you know, there's always a workaround. There's always going to be a workaround. Ublock is posting a daily instructions for for defeating that. They're doing they're doing an yeah. update every single day. Ublock <laughs> Origin. It, it seems it seems like a lot, but it's twenty dollars a month for fucking YouTube without ads. Yeah. Like yeah. who you know? Like I'm not. I don't have that kind of money to throw around. But you know, uh, it's like every time you go to a website that is like ad based, they just want to direct you to the to the app. Like please use our app. I'm like I don't want to use your app because I'm tired of getting fucking sold shit every single time yep. I come on your website. Well, and this is why increasingly more websites uh, on mobile are rejecting your ability to access the the site, and uh, unless you use the app with a, you know, they have a pop up window there. The 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 idea here that's really at the basis of your argument around interoperability, I think, is a really uh, really powerful one because it's it's one of those basic facts uh, of technology and of computing um, that. Most people are just that we're not really taught um, that, that, you know, the, uh, the, the fact that like these all computers are universal computers, right? That like they can run 
any program, right? This is why you occasionally get these like viral uh, videos or memes or whatever of like, I ran doom on a pregnancy test, you know? And it's like, yeah, because if it if it's a computer and increasingly more things are computers or have computers embedded in them, they can run any program. And you make this point that like, it might just take a really, really, really long time for it to run, but it will run eventually. Um, and, and so, I, I think that's a really, you know, that's foundational to your argument about interoperability. But I think it's also um, a really powerful point that, you know, I teach in a uh, faculty of information technology. Um, and so I, I teach, you know, like undergraduate computer science and software engineers uh, and, 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 Thanks to some of the uh, brilliant uh, examples and descriptions of this from Chokepoint Capitalism, but now IndernetCon, um, I'll teach this I, this whole idea that like all computers are universal computers um, that, you know, as you said, like it's actually uh, impossible to, to build a computer that can only run a sp one specific program without having, um, you know, in a technical sense, without having all these other encryption walls and, and legal barriers to it. And that simple point that is a, just a technical fact uh, is new to a lot of people um, um, I teach in a computer science and an IT faculty, right? And and it's like because that's just not a a fact of computing that uh, people are taught for whatever reason, right? I mean, I think we can have you know really cynical uh, uh, explanations for why that's not taught. It's not in the interest of all the people we're talking about, all the companies and 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 capital and so on, for people to realize that uh, interoperability is the technical fact, not the anomaly of these systems. Um, but it, I think it is really it makes it one of those. Uh, basic points that's so that's really powerful because uh that basic point has had so much um just dirt shoveled on top of it to prevent people from realizing that that's the way that computers work sorry i, I always say the least science fictional statement ever ever made was uh when margaret thatcher said there is no alternative right like extinguishing your imagination about how else things could be is where all of this starts. And I think that for like non-technical people, when uh, they have a capability in a relatively open system that's replaced by a closed system, it doesn't always occur to them that that was a design decision as opposed to something to do with like physics, right? So like we all had VCRs that could record TV and then we had DVD players that couldn't. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, it must be something about optical drives, right? But it's, it's not optical drives, right? It was it, a cartel created a regime in which uh, using patents and trademarks, they made it impossible to implement a DVD player that could record TV lawfully, right? And so you just, it was just swiped out from under your nose. And I think all, we all remember TiVo and we remember when you could just record anything that came over cable and digital cable added DRM and got with it the law that says that breaking DRM is a crime and so once you add DRM to a TV show, you can just deny DVR makers the keys to, to decrypt the video unless they agree to honor all kinds of flags, like don't record Amazon Prime streams and don't 
allow people to skip commercials and delete recordings after a certain number of days. All of these things that are not um, things that you would choose, right? They're all anti-features, right? They're all things that that you wouldn't want. But but I think that w- we just we often go into these things thinking, oh well, that, like my imagine, like I can't imagine that it could be otherwise. Not that you haven't seen a counterexample, but you've been misled into thinking that this is a uh, different category of goods. And you know, you remind me that the impetus for all of this started when I got invited to address the 50th anniversary of the computer science program at the University of Waterloo, which is this Canadian university, bills itself as the MIT of the North. I am a proud University of Waterloo dropout, and. Uh, my my dad was in the CS program back when it was called, I think, Applied Mathematics or something. And and um, so I went back and I talked about this stuff as a very uh, like early version of this talk. It must have been nearly 10 years ago. And afterwards, like some computer science students said, like, how do we convince all of our friends to stop using Facebook and start using something more open? Like, because I can't go until they do. And I was like, but you're a computer science student. You are a grad student at the MIT of the North. You don't convince your friends. You give them a tool, right? Or you make a tool for your own use. You go somewhere else and you just keep reading your friends' messages because you've just like, you should be moving fast and breaking things, right? Like, why is it that just the assholes are moving fast and breaking things? And the reason is that they have converted IP, which is a term that it has this super contested meaning and that free software people get really angry about when you use it and so on. They have they have created a, a very crisp definition of IT, which is any set of policies or rules that I can wrap around my business that makes it a crime for my users, my competitors, or my critics to do things that anger me so that I can create what Jay Freeman calls felony contempt of business model. So, you know, Apple engraves tiny Apple logos on subcomponents in your iPhone so that when they're shipped to the Pacific Rim to be disassembled for parts for independent repair and then shipped back into the US, Apple can say there's a trademark violation because these are goods of unknown quality that will tarnish the value of our brand in the minds of consumers, right? These are like microscopic, uh, uh, infinitesimal uh, uh, logos that no one can see, but this this IP lets them use it to stop you from getting your phone fixed by people you want to have fix your phone. The you have the book is chock full of these examples that like I, I've never heard of as well, like having the the uh, microscopic Apple logos on every part because that then allows them to. Uh, I would say weaponized trademark, but they are actually just using trademark in the way it's designed to be used. So, <laughs> I would quibble with that, but okay. I mean, I think that there's like a legitimate room for trademark, which is like the Mozilla project going after people who make spyware and call it Firefox, uh, well, which is like a trademark would- use, right? I right. guess what I mean yeah. by that is, you know, to 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 paraphrase the uh, the Stafford beer maxim, <laughs> that a, a purpose of a system is what is it what does. it does, and, yeah. and so like if that's the purpose of the trade, if that's what the trademark system does, then that has sure. become its purpose, hundred uh, percent. And um and, and so like, but the the your book is chock full of all these examples, um, because it re- I think it you know we've been talking a lot about the uh. 
the the kind of interoperability as this technical problem, and you've been mentioning this real kind of intersection between IT and IP, and your book really sits at the Venn diagram of where those two things converge, because to go back to what we were saying at the top of the show, like that is where so much of the material power of the world right now really sits, is at the intersection of IT and IP. Um, and, and, and if anything, the, the legal technology of something like DRM um, is so much more powerful than any information technology um, that exists right now. Let's maybe go continue harping on Apple a little bit in large part because I think they get away with a lot of stuff, sure. right? Like they don't get the kind of attention that Amazon gets, that Facebook gets, that Google gets. Um, and in fact, I mean, as well to invoke Zuboff again, right? Apple was the case study, the epitome for Zuboff yeah. of quote-unquote, advocacy-oriented capitalism, a.k.a. the good capitalism that stands athwart surveillance capitalism, right? Um, and I, I think your your book, real, without invoking that specific, uh, specific argument, really dismantles it and shows that, uh, that Apple... That Apple didn't become the first trillion dollar company um, because everyone loves and adores it so much and decided to shower it with uh, with free gifts of cash every every year or month or week or whatever. Um, it did so because it sits perfectly at that intersection of IT and IP, and it sits on a big throne uh, of skulls uh, at that at reigning over <laughs> that, that kind of that, that realm. And so I don't know, could you content, maybe using Apple as this case study, could you go on a little bit more about how they stand athwart interoperability and have really uh, created this whole empire um, by defeating interoperability at every or trying to at least at every turn yeah well like l look at the um, app store model that they really pioneered i mean there were there were examples of it a little bit in in games before they came along but they really made it into um a kind of default this idea that you can only install software if uh they've approved it and they they phrased the case for this in very paternalistic terms you know we're just doing it to protect you uh, and it is true that like they detect and turf out a ton of malware. Um, but in order to uh, keep you from installing a third-party app store, they have locked down the firmware on the device so that you can't install an alternative OS without bypassing these locks and risking criminal prosecution. And um, that means that they now hold users hostage because you are locked into the apps that you bought from them. You're locked into your phone. You're locked into their cloud. You're locked into their messaging. You're locked in in lots of ways. And that lets them hold businesses hostage because those businesses need to be where the users are. And so they end up being, you know, in a kind of Yanis Varoufakis sense, they end up being like techno-feudalists, right? Where the, yeah, they, they get a lot of income from profit, which is like selling things for more than it costs to make them by you know appropriating the surplus value created by their workers but they get even more income from rent which is not profit right rent is like the money that you get from owning something that someone else needs in order to make a profit and so you know in this case it would be slots in the app store payola for ranking highly in the app store and so on and you know there's been this um 
uh, in both uh, the country you live in and the country I'm from, Canada and Australia, uh, there has been this concern about how the tech sector relates to the news sector. And there have been these news bargaining codes in both countries, which are effectively um, profit-sharing regimes for news entities and tech entities. And um, it's interesting because Apple has been largely left out of this discussion, even though they're half of the, the mobile duopoly. They're half of the Google Apple duopoly. And the Google Apple duopoly takes 30 cents out of every subscriber dollar that a news company gets out of an app. Like the the normal uh, payment processing VIG is about 3%. And that is considered to be high. It's gone up 40% since the pandemic started. Uh, it is um, uh, controlled by a cartel that are wildly profitable and just have insane returns. And so that's the... I will say on that Visa and MasterCard since the pandemic have become two of the most uh, uh, capitalized companies in the in the world. Their 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 market cap and their their revenues have skyrocketed since the pandemic because of that uh, going from a two percent transaction fee to a three percent transaction fee. And and so they're they're at three percent. Apple's at thirty, right? And and like that is just pure rent that they're creaming off. Now, the reason they can do that is because you as the user and the news media entity as the business customer, neither of you are empowered to um, switch out the in-app payment system to a third-party payment system. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that I uh, I dream of being saved by Apple from Apple by Walmart, say, but imagine if it were lawful to bypass the locks so that anyone could install an app store. I don't find it too much of a stretch to imagine that Walmart would go after the app vendors, the independent software vendors that are like the 10% that represent 90% of Apple's profits uh, and say to them, hey, we'll process your transactions for 3% instead of 30. And we're going to we're gonna sell a 99 cent dongle that jailbreaks your phone in the checkout aisle at Walmart and installs the Walmart app store. Right. And again, like, Competition is not a good unto itself, but to see Apple and Walmart fighting about this would be very powerful, right? It would actually like get us somewhere and it would make a material difference because if independent news entities, not just the Murdoch press or post media in Canada or whatever can, can get uh, profit sharing from um, big tech. But if every news entity including the ones that are like crowdfunding because they're laid off ex newspaper reporters who are now doing city hall or, or the parliamentary, you know, this provincial or state parliament or, or state house uh, and covering it where no one else is could get 30% more out of every subscriber they have at the stroke of a pen, right? That would enable like more news, more payment, more value for workers and less value for rentiers. Uh, and, and, you know, there are other ways we could do this too, that like interoperability strikes at like the ad tech sector. I know a lot of people are like, well, ads are intrinsically bad, you know, like writers need a way to tell people who might want to read their books that they have a new book out. Like ads are not, I don't think ads are intrinsically bad. I think a way for people who have a thing to tell other people that the thing exists. You know, I've got, I got my issue of 2600 in the mail today. And my favorite part of 2600 is the 
you know, incredibly tiny print marketplace that's just like, I want a prison pen pal. And uh, here's how you can call into our radio station. And uh, I'm gathering data for a study. Or do you have a leak or a tip that you want to share with an investigative reporter? Here is a Unix shell account with more vhost. Like, here's my lock picking kits that I'll sell to you. Like, ads are fine, right? The, the, the problem with ads is that surveillance ads are creepy, enable all kinds of incredibly disgusting things like reverse warrants and mass surveillance and doxing, and they've allowed a duopoly of Facebook and Google to corner 51% out of every dollar that is spent on ads, where, again, the normal VIG for ad intermediaries historically in the era of Don Draper and Mad Men was like 10%. And so they're getting 5x, and that's coming out of independent publishers, independent performers, independent writers' pockets, right? It's a way to shift value from labor to capital. So, like, interoperability, where we could have uh, more ways of, of, of getting ads, including regulation that banned surveillance ads, so the ads would be context-based, would be a way to shift value, right, and, and produce superior material outcomes for workers and the people who value the things that they make. And like compared to, you know, um, banning ads or whatever, right? I think that this is like, um, that the way to, to ban ads is to make it legal to have ad blockers so that if the companies do ads that are obnoxious and, and gross, people never see them again and uh, that kind of ad goes extinct, as happened with pop-up ads. You know, when when I started with Boing Boing, pop-up ads were a really big deal on the web. They were awful. They auto-played music. They were like spawned at one pixel square and then ran away from your cursor. You'd open a window and 50 pop-ups would pop up. I mean, it was terrible. And our, our advertisers really wanted pop-up ads. And we would argue like hell with them. But the reason there are no pop-up ads today isn't because we won that argument. It's because like Opera and then Mozilla shipped a pop-up blocker. And again, just like the guy who's like, boss, uh, it'll make me feel bad and you'll go broke, wins the argument with their boss. We won the argument by saying this makes us feel bad and no one will see the ad. Right. And then and then the ad went away. Right. So so like again, it disciplines companies. It's not a substitute for regulation. But it moves faster than regulation. It fills gaps that regulation doesn't fill. It substitutes for uh, regulation in, ter- un- in conditions where regulators are captured or incompetent, which is sometimes the case. And it is intensely complementary to regulation. If for no other reason, then it keeps companies from becoming so concentrated that they can capture their regulators more easily. Do you see part of the, you know, a similar analog to this being kind of the concentration of cloud computational infrastructure, you know, I've been trying to nail down figures for the exact dollars, but a significant number or a significant portion of money that's spent on venture capital firms just goes straight back to Mm -hmm. one of the large tech firms that offers cloud computing, and then will almost certainly either steal their idea, acquire (laughs) them, or push them out of business in one way or another, right? (laughs) Yeah. and it seems to me also like that it's both similar in in that you know offering some alternative might offer a way out but it also seems like a problem that is a little bit harder to handle in that computational infrastructure i don't you kind of like the, a through line that we've been talking about is the way in which i think a lot of the, uh, some of the regulation and some of the discussions about technology sit at the moment 
the option op- providing an option for computational infrastructure that's not centered in cloud computing seems far removed from interest, political economy, uh, the kind of contours of the debates, uh, and maybe even the capacity of the administrative state at this point. Well, you know, I think that there are both firms and individuals who, for very different reasons, would prefer not to have all their data round trip through the cloud, right? I think that, you know, the uh, entrepreneurs and, 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 uh, you know, the kind of Y Combinator crowd are keenly attuned to those risks that you just described, right? Like they've seen it happen to people they admired and firms that they admired and, and so on. They, they know that it's a risk. Um, they, you know, something funny happened on the way to this decade, which is that, you know, tech bros went from thinking, oh, I'll work for this big, dumb tech company for three years and then do a startup that'll knock them over to, oh, I'll work for this big, dumb tech company for three years and then do a fake startup that they can acqua hire as like a very roundabout way of getting a a bonus, Mm -hmm. right? To like, uh, I guess I'm going to work for this tech company for the rest of my life, but at least as a job for life and I get like free kombucha and massages on Wednesdays. And, And now it's like, I guess I'm going to work for this tech company until they lay off me and like 11,999 other engineers like Google did right after doing a stock buyback that would pay all our salaries for 27 years. And so I think that like there are a lot of people who would like to build new technology who understand that these large tech firms are not their allies and and don't respect them. I think it's one of the reasons you see tech labor uh, organizing taking off is that you know, the, the sense among techies, which I think was always inflated, that they can bargain better as free agents than they could as a unit is, is now like at an all time low, you know, nobody, nobody really thinks they can bargain as a free agent anymore with these firms. They, they want collective representation. And so there are a lot of people who'd like to, to sidestep the cloud and, you know, back before Napster got killed, there was a lot of interest in how we could build cloud architecture out of uh, distributed PCs. Um, we still see a lot of it, you know, like like the IPFS is is powering a large fraction of the internet archive, and that's just like distributed file systems. Um, even, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to be the first person to mention AI because then I owe all you guys a drink, but, um, <laughs> you know, even in like AI, there are a lot of people in AI who are like, we're going to do like federated learning with language models running on consumer hardware. We're not going to do this in the cloud anymore for, for good reasons, for like commercial reasons of not wanting to be captured by a single firm. Uh, and so there's, there's, you know, real energy behind this. Uh, and, you know, maybe we should get into the theory of change in the book here, which is, you know, the, the idea that I stole from Milton Friedman uh, which is that, you know, in times of crisis, good ideas lying around can move from the periphery to the center. So your job has to be to keep good ideas lying around until the impossible becomes the inevitable. And, and tech has given us an absolute abundance of crises, but we don't have a lot of like good shovel ready, administratable plans that can actually resolve it. And like, if there are technical barriers to, or, or policy barriers to distributed peer to peer compute, um, those should be the subject of, uh, intense kind of design fiction about what a new regulation would look like because sure as shit, there's going to be some horrific crisis involving clouds 
where whether that's good, like a big piece of infrastructure going offline and a big chunk of the internet going dark at a critical juncture or the kinds of abuse you just described with you know just just big companies big footing people who eventually are so kind of charismatic and and lovable that they get the audience that that uh you know weasley guys who you know, talk like Jason Calacanis can't get, uh, and, 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 and like people will care. And then there'll be this moment where we can say, well, you know, it's just this like impediment to, to peer to peer architecture. One of the things we should recognize is the extent to which monopoly begets monopoly, right? Like sectors monopolize, um, defensively against other parts of their supply chain, because if you're the only dis- di- distributed, disorganized part of your supply chain, then the monopolist upstream of you and the monopolist downstream of you are going to tear you apart and eat you. Right, right. Right. Like pharma monopolized and started gouging hospitals. So hospitals monopolized and started gouging insurers. So insurers monopolized and now everybody gets gouged if you're a patient by all three. And if you're a doctor or a nurse by all three, and yeah, they like jostle among each other to change the distribution among each other. But the one thing they're absolute total class solidarity on is that you are for breakfast, right? And and so, you know, this is like publishing, which went from 300 distributors to three, uh, as we went from uh, hundreds of grocery stores and pharmacies that sold mass market paperbacks to half a dozen big big box chains, Sam's Club and, and Costco and Walmart. And then that uh, pushed publishing down to five publishers. Uh, and now you've got readers at one end and and writers at the other getting hosed along with publishing workers. Uh, and among those three sectors, yeah, there's a, like a lot of jockeying about who's going to get how much, but they're all very content to lower royalties and, and advances and lockstep on one end and charge more to readers on the other. Yeah, I, I think let's let's keep pushing this, especially because I think talking about the the kind of the legal and regulatory elements of this is so key. I mean, this is really this is really a book about law and regulation as much as it is a book about technology. And you know, the subtitle here, seizing the means of computation, that's not just a lofty ideal, but you really do have some shovel ready ideas yeah. and, and plans in, in place. And you know, I think as well talking, let's you know, we can talk for brief, a little bit more meta about regulation and then get into some of these ideas as well, because I think one of the things that this book does really well is it takes regulation really seriously. It doesn't just point to the failures of regulation or the inability of, of, of administrations to do good regulation, um, or it, but it, it rather points to the power of regulation and that like this is a really necessary avenue for for change, right? That and I, I won't get on my hobby horse here because we just need to do a, a a whole episode about it. But <laughs> I've been uh, I've been for a long time a a, a a position of mine is that the the IRS presents itself as one of the most powerful um, agencies. For actual real like radical revolutionary change in the economy and society, if it weren't captured by 
the right wing, and if but instead we're captured by the left wing. Um, if we had an IRS that didn't operate in the interest of right wing uh, billionaires, billionaires, capital, um, and Grover Norquest type folks, um, but instead had a, a, a an IRS that operated in the interest of um, a like real socialist left wing, um, you know, doing actual forensic auditing, um, doing independent oversight, doing real dis- financial distribution um, of ill-gotten gains, then I think we we would see so much radical change happen so quickly if the IRS just shifted what side of the spectrum it worked on. Um, and 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 I, but I think the same can be said, uh, and you do say it, of a lot of the things that we're ta- that we're talking about here in the book. If we had uh, IP uh, regulation and mandates, if we had, you know, instead of having uh, the tech companies running their own kangaroo courts, but actually had real courts with due process um, in place, then like we would see so much real radical change happen and a lot more quickly than as you say, like the, you know, we want antitrust, we want monopoly, we want these things to be broken up uh, and, and destroyed. But that takes a really, 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 really long time, right? It was the, you know, the, the you have the stat that, you know, Usually, it's said that like the breakup of IBM took like seven years, but AT and T, AT and T. Sorry, that the all these uh, acronyms, but um, that the the breakup of AT and T took seven years, but in reality, it was a sixty-nine year battle if we count um, all of the uh, the cases that the DOJ was trying to throw against AT&T, the ongoing and endless backcourt battles and back and forth. Like it was a 69 year battle, right? And so these things take a really, really long time. We saw it in the 90s with Microsoft, right? Like that they, they, it, it not only takes a long time, it's extremely expensive. We're talking about companies that are willing and able to outspend the U.S. government um, on these court fights. Uh, and, and so that can't be our only avenue. It can't be the only uh, weapon that we have in our arsenal. It, it has to be a, a diversity of tactics simultaneously happening at once, a battle on multiple fronts. And I think regulation and really actually changing regulation um, at, at all different levels matters a lot. And you have some really great um, examples of how this can happen and not as like, well, we can do this or that, but the, the, the conjunction is an and, not an or. We need to do this and that and that all at the same time. Um, and especially in one of the chapters, jam today, you kind of really lay out, I think, a number of, of key things that we should be focusing on. So I don't know, I'll hand it over to you. Um, take us where you want to start first, but I would love to kind of get your thought on regulation, uh, maybe a more kind of meta uh, argument about the need to actually take regulation seriously. And again, it's not this like we need to abolish power or abolish advertisements or abolish regulation. It's like, no, we need to instead really take hold of these things, shape them, ensure that they look in the way that benefits us 
are used in ways that benefit us. And so this is, uh, in a way, a kind of an argument against a, a very left libertarian um, strain that you uh, that you've called out um, rightfully of just kind of denying regulation as a as a, an avenue at all or as something that needs to be taken seriously. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Corey. Yeah, I think that a lot of leftists um, are, are keenly attuned to the problems of regulatory capture, but aren't familiar with the history of the term. And it's actually quite instructive. It comes out of the most batshit wing of the, <laughs> uh, of the uh, Chicago school. Yes. <laughs> um, who are themselves the most batshit economists. Um, and it, it specifically comes out of the um, public choice theory yeah. uh, weirdos. And and so th- their theory, like in a nutshell, is basically, um, you know, regulators are very powerful. They, they wield the power of the state. And for a firm that can capture a regulator, there's an enormous amount of benefit to be yielded. And so everyone being a rational actor, you as like a citizen who stands to be ripped off by that firm are, are only going to put so much energy into keeping your regulators honest. But that firm is someone who can like devour you and all your friends is going to put, you know, move heaven and earth in order to make sure that they're in charge of the regulator and they, they, the regulator becomes like a, an arm of the firm, right. And, and does, does the firm's business. And, and so therefore the only way that we can have a market in which the government does not become part of the, of, of some corporate agenda is by not having any regulators at all. Right. Uh, and, and (laughs) like, so just, just, uh, uh, just to, to jump in for a second, I, uh, they also, this is, not only is this one, the most batshit theory, they also, yeah, like you said, they regard themselves as the only people who have an idea of how to bring democracy, real democracy about, and they got a Nobel Prize. I don't <laughs> know, James Buchanan. It's like, you, you, it's funny, you lay, like, anytime you lay out these, like, uh, Chicago school logics or libertarian arguments, they sound childish because they are but they are chock full of nobel prizes as well well it's not a real nobel right just (laughs) that's right (laughs) it's not a real nobel i mean it was a real nobel when they gave it to eleanor ostrom but then it immediately became a fake ass uh, (laughs) nobel right afterwards it's a nobel uh it's it's a participation trophy for bourgeois science is what it is yeah 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 uh so yeah um I, I, and, and so, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, given that we have sometimes had good regulation and the evidence of that is all around us, right? Like, you know, the ceiling over my head hasn't fallen in on me. And so therefore somebody figured out what the like right mixture of alloys and structural characteristics, uh, steel joists should have in order to hold up the roof over my head. And like my anti-lock brakes haven't killed me. And my kid has managed to go to high school and not become an ignoramus. And I had dinner at a restaurant last night and I didn't die of cholera. And so like, it is clearly possible to make rules that aren't wrong. Maybe we could have made them better, right? But they're not wrong on their face. And, and how is it that rules become wrong? I think rules become wrong when they gore someone's ox and when the person who owns that ox is powerful uh, and powerful enough to push around the regulator more powerful than the, than the state. Um, You mentioned IBM uh, and, and their antitrust battle, IBM, uh, the DOJ went after them in 1980 and pursued them through court until 1982 when Reagan dropped the case against them. 
And for each of those 12 consecutive years, IBM spent more on outside counsel to fight the DOJ antitrust division than the DOJ antitrust division spent on every lawyer fighting every antitrust case in America. They called it antitrust Vietnam. And when, when there's like three companies in a sector, when there's five companies in a sector, they can agree on what their policy priorities are. They can uh, make sure that the preponderance of evidence presented to regulators during a notice of inquiry or a notice of proposed rulemaking is parochially tilted to their favor. They can divert some of their profits to, you know, creating a kind of uh, a halo of fake think tanks and uh, nonprofits and so on that that produce talking points that are favorable to their point of view. And that's where regulatory capture comes from. It, it's like it's not the case that we cannot have nice things, right? We, we can, in fact, make good evidence-based policy. We can, more to the point, make policy where if there's a mistake in it, it's because someone made a mistake and not because someone induced a mistake. And we can make policy where if someone makes a mistake, there are mechanisms for, for detecting and correcting it. Those are things that like we're going to have to do if we're going to address the climate emergency, if we're going to address all of the other elements of the poly crisis that are going to emerge from it. We're going to need good um, epidemiological policy because that was the the current pandemic is not the last zoonotic plague that's going to emerge from habitat loss. We're going to have to have new architectural standards and public safety standards. We're going to have to build rapid refugee housing. We're going to have to address uh, wildfires, and all of these are like intense technical policy questions. And so when people read this book and they discover that the bulk of the response that I counsel is not to go off and vote with your wallet or build a technology that's better, although, yeah, people should make technologies that are better. And to the extent that you can, it's worth avoiding giving money to companies that suck, especially if there's one that doesn't suck as bad. But uh, it's about making sure that regulators step in and describing how they can step in such that when they do, it's going to be hard for firms to cheat. And when those firms cheat, it's going to be easy to find find that they're cheating and to make them stop. And and that, I think, that administratability of a remedy is something that is really key to thinking about how you make the world better in the short and medium term. Like, what rule can we make that we can figure out if the, that, that will make a positive difference and that we can figure out if someone's cheating at it. It's one of the problems with carbon credits, right? Like even if you stipulate to the core reasoning of carbon credits and you believe that, you know, as, as Marx and Engels do in chapter one of the manifesto, right? That, that the bourgeoisie with the right profit motive dangled in front of them will move heaven and earth to get those profits. How do you make sure that the carbon credits are real? How do you not have it turn into a market for lemons, right? How do you know, that the carbon credit you buy isn't for a forest that already burned down or a forest that someone pledged not to log, even though it was already a wildlife preserve that no one could legally log. And so there was no real credit to be had. And of course, those are the cheapest credits to make, right? The credits that don't cost anything. So, you know, the the, the bad pushes out the good. So even if you like carbon credits as a abstraction, unless you have an idea for how to figure out how to certify the value of a credit, and, and administer it and make sure that it's good, then you have to give up on it. It's just a pipe dream. Whereas the remedies that uh, I propose at the end of the book are not just things that would have the right material effect in terms of how the value is distributed as between people who use the internet, the workers who make the internet, and the investors who parasite off the value they create. But it's, it's also something where if we did it, 
we could make sure that no one was cheating at it. We could, we could figure out where the bad actors were and punish them. So if we had good regulators, we could do something about it. And also so that the regulators don't act expeditiously or fairly that we would have self-help measures of our own. That's, that's kind of the package that I try to build in the book. Let's get a little bit more concrete there as well about like how interoperability can actually be enforced, mandated, made yeah. into a kind of a universal thing. And I, I think one of the, the one of the avenues you really highlight that I think is is really crucial here because it does recognize on one hand, a difference between kind of public markets and private markets, right? So here we're talking about, uh, you know, procurement policy, right? Recognizes on one hand that, you know, p- p- corporations are not democracies. You, you can only vote with your dollar to, to, to whatever extent that they allow you to vote for your dollar yeah. or vote and with no your dollar. No matter who you vote for, the monopoly party always wins. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, so you, and it, it might be, you know, really difficult and also politically, uh, a third rail as well to try to make, uh, enforce mandates on the practices and operations of private businesses. But what you can do, and then this gets to the kind of incentives of using them in a judo kind of way, use the market against itself. However, government procurement policy is ostensibly uh, publicly accountable, right? It is policy about purchasing by government uh, agencies and departments from private vendors and contractors. And that is policy that is like all other legislation set in law by policymakers, decision makers, people who are accountable and ostensibly report to the public. Now, you know, currently we have government procurement policies that, you know, talk about capture, they have largely been captured and manipulated to the benefit of these, you know, really um, concentrated cartels and monopolies of vendors who get, you know, untold billions and trillions of government contracts um, for Applying overpriced and uh, low quality goods, right? Because it's a it's a captured market. Just like they hate their users, uh, they also hate their their partners in the government. Hey, if you can bilk them for a thousand percent markup on low quality goods because there's no other competition, then then great. It would be poor business not to do it, right? I think you really point out though. That these procurement rules are also one of these kinds of. I, I love you. You draw from. Um, I forget the name of the book. Um, uh, it's a, a children's book. The the shield of boringness. Uh, oh yeah, this is Dana Claire and the the heavenly nostrils books. They're 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 great comics. Daily daily comic strips about um, a unicorn and a little girl. It's like Calvin and Hobbes without the um, creepy misogyny. <laughs> and and it's great. I love this idea of the shield of boringness. Right. I've I've, I've, I've already already taken it for some of uh, some of my work on uh, on insurance which also has a shield of boringness cast over it just like things like technical standards government procurement rules all of these things have this like spell of uh, a, a shield of boringness that that cause that it prevents you from uh, noticing it exists right as soon as you catch it in your in your eyes line um, your eyes just glaze over uh, and and so I think you you really point out though that government procurement rules are this 
extraordinarily powerful avenue for doing things like mandating interoperability rules and the uh, purchasing of, um, of vehicles, of computer systems, of anything that a government department, um, from the federal government all the way down to local government, anything that they might need to buy, um, you just put in the government procurement rule. This needs to be able to be repaired by any technician or any mechanic. Um, this needs this system needs to be able to work and plug into any other system in in our our, our department. Um, like just mandating these procurement rules or these uh, interoperability mandates into procurement rules suddenly makes one of the largest single buyers and purchasers uh, on the market of of these goods, the government, um, into a monopsony, uh, uh, essentially, right? The government yeah. has this monopsony power that it does not take advantage of for the public interest when that's exactly its whole mandate is to uh, spend money and produce services that serve the public interest. But they're sitting on this unused power as a monopsony, as, you know, for, for listeners, you know, a, a, a monopsony is a, um, a single buyer of services or a kind of monopoly buyer of services. This is a power that Walmart, for example, uses to great effect um, as one of the largest buyers of other people's goods. And it imposes really strict mandates and conditions on people that it buys its goods from because it's like, well, if you want to sell your thing, you probably need to do it in our retail distribution outlets and Walmart stores. And we won't carry your thing unless you give us privileged and 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 uh, uh, kind of terms and conditions that benefit us. The, I, I think you lay out this really succinct and powerful argument for using government procurement, the monopsony power of government procurement for for good rather than for evil. Yeah. So, you know, there's the, I, I, a small correction. I do think that the government should also want things that are interoperable. But what I really think would be powerful is that they said, if you sell to the government and we pay someone for something that is interoperable, right? You sell us a car and we pay someone to fix it and they don't adhere to your terms and conditions, they violate your patents or whatever, you have to promise not to sue them. You have to promise not to attack people who create services that make the things the government buys with public funds more valuable, longer-lived, more versatile, and more useful to the public, right? And and in that environment, well, suddenly, like you can start a business that is going to reverse engineer the diagnostic codes on cars because you can fix any government motor pool car or sell it to anyone who fixes a government motor pool car. And this has a really long tradition in. Uh, public procurement and good public administration. So Lincoln very famously refused to buy rifles from armorers unless they used interoperable standard tooling and ammo, because it would be embarrassing to be like the commander in chief during the Civil War and to like show up at Gettysburg and be like, "Sorry, boys, uh, battle's canceled today. Uh, nobody's making any ammunition this week. Uh, we bought single source ammo." Um, and and you know, it's a lesson that. Um, 
like randomly the DOD has somehow forgotten. And like, I am by no means a stand for the DOD. I'm a unilateral disarmament kind of guy, but it is wild. In, in David Dian's book, Monopolized, he talks about how, um, uh, after the Obama administration did these shotgun weddings with the primary def- defense contractors, they decided there were too many of them and made them all merge down to like five. Um, the uh, uh, private equity weirdos started looking heavily at their subcontractors and identified the ones that had single source components where they were the only ones who made a part often because they held a patent or some other IP to it. And they bought those firms and they had them lower the price of those single source components. So they were selling them at a giant loss, which encouraged the primary defense contractors to put as many of these components as possible into the things they sold to the DOD. But the replacement parts are sold at 10,000% markups to the DOD when they want to keep this stuff running. Right. (laughs) And like, you could easily see, like pick your, pick the, your monster, right? Josh Hawley, standing up in Congress and decrying this practice and demanding interoperability, right? Like this does not have to be like, I like, I like ideas that are uh, good for working people and for the public interest that you don't have to care about those things in order to endorse, right? Like I, I, cause, cause I'll take my, I'll take my allies if I can, like I'll take my coalitions if I can, cause I want to get shit done and not just be like in a, and a clubhouse full of people who I'd have for dinner, uh, as opposed to like people who I, you know, wouldn't let in my house without counting the spoons afterwards. Like I, I want those coalitions, right? Like I, th- those are good coalitions. I used to be weird when I would go to anti-nuclear proliferation, uh, marches in the eighties, we on the anti-nuclear proliferation side would be carrying Solidarność banners for the Polish trade union movement. And the ultra right wing weirdos who come out to de- counter demonstrate us would also be carrying Solidarność banners because they supported Solidarność's challenge to Soviet hegemony, right? It was uh, uh, like there's a reason like Walesa won, right? <laughs> he he sat at this like Venn intersection of people who disagreed about everything else, but they liked him, you know. And and so um, this is the kind of remedy that I think like is politically possible, and also powerful and it lets us set a norm as well as a law where companies that say like well i can't make as much profits if i can't control repair and add-ons and blah 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 we can just say like look nobody told you you had to sell stuff to the government like if you're too emotionally fragile to be in this business like just just find another line of work hippie right like (laughs) you know there's someone else who will make the cars and the Google Classroom and the whatever that this that the these public agencies can procure? We don't do this nearly often enough, hmm. right? There are so many crybaby uh, capitalism apologists who just want to tell us that like these poor guys just want to maximize their profits. They're just doing you know what what Saint Friedman told them to do and maximize shareholder value. And, and like, I think even Friedman, and again, like, I am glad that Satan took Friedman to hell in 2006. <laughs> and I like to quote him because I imagine that it makes him so angry that he like gargles a curse around that red hot iron bar that's <laughs> protruding through his mouth from his mouth as the <laughs> demons turn the spit he's roasting on. But, but, uh, you know, I think even Friedman would say that maximizing shareholder value doesn't mean that everyone else has to help you. 
right? Right. Like the customer's job is not to maximize shareholder value, right? The your competitor's job is not to maximize shareholder value. Like even like internally within their own framework, it is not my job to make sure that Apple gets a thirty percent vig on every app dollar. That's Apple's job, maybe. Right, but it's certainly not mine, and I am under no obligation to arrange my affairs to make that work. And if Tim Cook doesn't like it, someone else can run Apple because no one made him take that job. I think this is a really powerful point in, that you make throughout the book as well. That all of these uh, systems that we've been describing of how you know technology has become you know so counter to its 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 universal computing nature um how you know these repair rigging schemes all of this right they like you know that these these you know the extreme monopoly rent capture all of these different schemes we've been describing they they are not like things that are created uh implemented and maintained um unilaterally by one person right apple is not able to do this on their own they require and depend upon a whole network of of a, a, a financial legal political network of other powerful entities and people who all decide explicitly or through negligence we are going to help apple uh create implement and maintain their trillion dollar rent seeking business. And then that is replicated throughout every industry, right? You have this great quote in the, uh, in the jam today chapter or this, uh, great, uh, line in the jam today chapter where you say, it's not the government's job to figure out how to protect automakers cockamamie repair rigging schemes. It's the government's job to prudently administer public finances and public procurement. And you go on like, you know, if the automakers can't bear that emotional uh, strain and so, but unfortunately we live in, in a society where the government has kind of taken it upon themselves to figure out how to protect the automakers cockamamie sure. repair rigging scheme. Um, but I think the fact is, is that like, we have to point that out, right? That like, that this is, this is running counter Ford, Apple, Facebook, uh, whoever you're right. Like they're doing what they, what we expect them to do. We would be shocked if they weren't doing what they're doing, but we should hold the government um, to a much higher standard and not say you don't have a, you should not be abetting the, their crimes, right? You should not be standing by allowing it to happen, creating the conditions where they can do what they, what we expect them to do, but, but creating the conditions such that they can do it to such more extremes than they would ever be able to do on their own. Um, it, it, it is, again, it's that idea of taking regulation seriously, taking government policy really seriously, not nihilistically throwing our hands up in the air and saying, well, that's just the way government operates, um, not succumbing to the, 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 the shield of boringness such that like, well, why are we concerned about that? You know, we're concerned about radical change and revolution why are we worried about uh -huh. protocols and policies um but it is instead 
I think that the book makes this really powerful argument that it's like, no, that that is the those are some of the most powerful and underused uh, avenues available to us if we really want material power to actually change in a real material way. Yeah, I mean, I am sympathetic to my fellow leftists who, you know, hear all this stuff and go like, I, I, how are you possibly going to get the government to act uh, right, to act better, to, to be more on the people's side and to have the people's back? Uh, you know, that is not in the nature of, of capitalism and, and never has been. The reality is that there have been higher ebbs for pluralistic, you know, broadly distributed prosperity and rights for all kinds of people, including the most marginalized and subaltern people in our societies, and that we are at a low ebb. And uh, while, you know, the right time to have started fighting monopolies was 40 years ago, the second best time is now. And while if I wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. This is where we are. And if there's one thing we learned during the Trump years, it's that accelerationism doesn't work. When the other side gets significantly worse and more harmful, it doesn't create the conditions for uh, a popular uprising and and a betterment of all of us. It puts all of us into survival mode, where instead of getting things done to make society better, we just fight rearguard actions to keep things from getting personally worse and worse for the people around us. Um uh, you know, conditions under which labor unions are lawful and powerful, um, in which people are guaranteed human rights, in, in, in which firms are weaker and have a harder time capturing the state. Those are the conditions in which we will make radical change. I firmly believe that. I, do, I think that um, it's going to be much harder to get there without that intermediate step. step, step, step. Well, I think that's as good as place of any to 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 wrap things up. Um, you know, here here for the intermediate step. Uh, yes, we, mm-hmm. we, uh, we, uh, 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 necessary but insufficient precondition. I'm gonna have that right. tattooed on me. Put it on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, Corey, it is as always a real joy to talk to you. Thank you. Um, and and always have this this endless fodder of interesting and important work to talk to you about. Uh, it, it, it's nice. It's nice to not just have you on to replay the same conversations. We have you on <laughs> to have new conversations. Yeah. I even made a Jason Calacanis joke for you guys. <laughs> I really love that. We were all. Uh, yeah. You are our, I'm trying to say that five times fast. You are our ideal listener. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) I mean, I know Jason. I'd like, he was, because, you know, he was starting Weblogs Inc. when I was doing Boing Boing, right? So we were like running in the same circles. Like, Mm -hmm. I have some Jason stories for you later on when we're we're off. (laughs) Oh, please. Please. All right. Well, we need to get off this recording right now. now. (laughs) Thank you so much, Corey. Uh, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. Um, Grab it from Verso. Uh, and and be on the lookout as always for for Corey's next. Oh, speaking of your next work, actually, we didn't yeah. even get to mention or talk about it. Yeah, give us the uh, the rundown on um, your your new 
novel that's coming. Yeah, it's called The Lost Cause. It comes out mid-February, and the pitch is that it's set uh, well into a Green New Deal, where there's a group of people, they think of themselves as the, quote, the first generation in a century that doesn't fear the future. And there's millions of them, they're all over the world, they're doing the hard, long-term work of making the planet habitable again. They're moving coastal cities inland. They are solarizing and weatherizing houses, caring for hundreds of millions of internal refugees, doing all the good stuff. And at the end of a successful run, there's a change in administrations and a counter-reformation, a backlash. And it's led by white nationalist militias and uh, their backers who are offshore, seagoing, plutocratic billionaire wreckers who are like LARPing a Neil Stevenson novel. And they <laughs> sail from city to city, coast to coast, trying to convince people to use Bitcoin and overthrow the Green New Deal and do geoengineering instead. I'm deeply and, obsessed with this. <laughs> yeah. And it's about this guy, Brooks, who's like a, a, a senior at my local high school here in Burbank, same school my kid goes to, whose, whose grandfather is a hardcore reactionary. His parents were young idealistic volunteers who went to Canada to help. This all starts in Canada uh, and died of a, of a zoonotic plague. Uh, and so he was orphaned, sent back to his grandfather. And his grandfather is this reactionary, hardcore sort of neo-John Bircher, part of a militia. And um, his grandfather uh, has a heart attack early on and he's orphaned uh, again. And is coming to grips with this just as a group of internal refugees from the Central Valley are coming to Burbank. And under law, they're entitled to housing. There's there's internal refugee housing rules that override planning stuff, that override parking stuff. And they start to build a new Burbank to house these refugees using prefab building and building very quickly. And that's when the entire nation is frozen by court challenges to hundreds of these projects all over the nation, led by these, these billionaire wreckers. And then the front end of it are these uh, super violent white nationalist militias. And it's about like the actual like shooting war that is simmering underneath this, this moment of hope and about whether uh, victory will survive or whether defeat will be snatched from its jaws. And so it's kind of a, an exciting adventure novel, but it's about these big ideas about what um, uh, climate adaptation looks like, what those political movements look like, how durable and stable they'll be. Uh, it's had great reviews from Bill McKibben and from Naomi Klein and Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, and it comes out on November the 14th. I'm really happy with it. Perfect. And and speaking of the the blurb from Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson that I think really encapsulates this as well is that you know, he writes, along with the rush of adrenaline, I felt a solid surge of hope. May it yeah. go like this. And I think that's really crucial to, to point out here as well, um, is that this is a, a, a really hopeful novel um, at the end of the day as well, which I think is really needed. And, and you know, we talk about, you know, three cheers for the intermediate step. Well, after the intermediate step, at some point comes the counter, the reactionary counter revolution. And, and it, it, that, that, that's, that certainly seems to be the, 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 um, the setting of this book is what happens after long after the intermediate step has succeeded. Um, well, then you've got the reactionary counter revolution to deal with. Yeah, I mean, my last novel, Red Team Blues, was in part about this security idea that attackers have an advantage, that the attacker needs to find one mistake you've made and exploit it, and the defender has to make no mistakes. 
And the the tr- the thing is that every attacker, if they win, becomes a defender, right? If you win, you be you become the status quo, and then you are suddenly the the dynamics that work for you are reversed. You're defending something good that you love is much harder than tearing down something bad that you hate. Uh, and w- you know, tearing down the bad thing that we hate has proven to be extremely hard. So imagine doing something even harder than that. And that's the kind of reality that I wanted to lean into here. I love it. Well, I look forward to reading it. Um, I know our listeners do too. So you've got you've got two books for your homework assignment, listeners: uh, the Internet Con and the Lost Cause, both yeah. uh, out by Corey Doctorow. So, Corey, thanks so much. Oh, and that um, that prison tech novel, The Bezel, is out in February. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, Corey! <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is now just like a really long extended bit you're doing for our. <laughs> Like for us, you do announce two books every time, and I do love it. <laughs> Truly, the bezel was teased last time you came on as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll got- try to be done when by the time my wife would like me to stop publishing books so that I I can stop being on tour. So it's probably going to happen eventually that I can stop publishing books one day. We'll we'll keep right. reading them and buying them until then. That's right. Oh, That's well, right. Don't well, don't encourage me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and uh, everyone can also find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. And until next time, later. Adios. Adios.